Hello everyone. Thank you for joining Get Out of Rap again. I appreciate you giving up your time to listen to people from our industry. Today I'm joined by Danny Wareham of Fergun. Danny is a regular contributor on the Get Out of Rap TV show and is an expert on culture. So important in our industry at the moment. You will definitely pick up some great tips from Danny. So let's get on with the show. Now this one is long overdue. There's going to be loads of people that will be very happy that I've finally got Danny Wareham of Fergun. Have I pronounced that correctly? Fergun? It's close enough. Fergun. Now, for those of you that watch Get Out of Rap TV, you'll know Danny's contributions are always so insightful. So I'm really looking forward to this. Thanks for coming on, Danny. Thanks for inviting me. The, the pleasure is absolutely all mine, Martin. You're a, you're a star in this industry. <laughs> We're just, bas- just basking in your glow. Basking in your glow. Well, the reflection of my massive forehead. So... If for people watching on YouTube, they're going to see the the bees around you. Let's start with the bees. Why bees? So two reasons. First and foremost, my partner is a massive bee fan, which by default makes anybody else's partner a massive bee fan as well. But the the main reason is that I'm quite mantra driven in the work that I do. It helped keep me aligned. My number one mantra is happy bees make tasty honey. Organizations tend to focus very much on the outputs on the honey. So what's our our performance, our KPIs, our outputs, our our EBITDA, et cetera. Whereas I believe that if you have the right people in the right environment, you have the right leadership, support, structure, culture, and engagement, then actually the performance is a side effect of that. So, and even if I'm wrong, which I'm not, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, (laughs) most of the companies looking at the output, I focus purely on how, how do we create the right environment, the right conditions for the bees. Now we're going to touch on your expertise and knowledge and what you do now in terms of helping companies, but where did it all start for you? Where did your, your journey to this point start? Where would you start? It's a, it's a great question because I think as you get older, you start to realize parts of your life and parts of the way that you behave and you see things kind of drop into place and you didn't realize why. So the, the point at where. They dropped in. Obviously, I was a little older. I did some retrospection and kind of and worked out why I think the way I do, why I feel the way I do. So from a professional level, I used to be quite, I'm quite process orientated by default. I like to know why things work. I was always taking things apart and trying to put it back together when I was young. And I worked for a, a contact center that was incredibly frustrating for the employees because customers often knew information before the employees did. So you had people in a sales channel, not knowing the pricing where the customers were telling us what the pricing was and the project methodology for launching products and services at the time had a kind of sign off gated process for customers. So you couldn't release something unless a customer knew where to go for info, where to go if it went wrong, how to get pricing, but there wasn't something comparable for employees. So I kind of manufactured myself a a secondment into that, that sort of project area with a, an agenda to introduce the same sort of thing for employees. So you couldn't release the product or proposition unless employees knew where to get it, what to do when it went wrong, how to get the pricing, et cetera. And what I found through that, I went in quite blinkered and, and process driven. And what I found was that the process is important, but actually nobody comes to work wanting to do a bad job. That's mantra number two. And so when processes fall over or things go wrong, actually your employees will paper over a lot of those cracks and a lot of those mistakes. And conversely, even if the process is absolutely perfect, even if you bring a brand new system is absolutely perfect, if your people aren't on board and they don't see the passion and purpose in that change, then actually they can undermine it as well. So that was about 18 years or 19 years ago. And that kind of moved me away from being a database Dan. So much more holistically looking at how do you drive the behaviors in the people that you want, that you want to drive purposefully. I guess though, thinking you'd rather have it that way around. You'd rather have the foundations of understanding processes, understanding where bits fit. And then you, you then start to think about the people because often people focused people Mm -hmm. struggle sometimes with the process. You're absolutely right. And quite often process driven people tend to forget about the people aspects until later on in, in projects. 
So you see late engagement of, of stakeholders are actually going to use the change, use the new system, use the new process, et cetera. On the flip side, people that are particularly people focused, if they don't have the process side and they don't understand that culture and employee engagement is a strategic tool, then you tend to just have fun stuff or novelty things that are introduced to your organization. So now Google have got a slide in the office. Let's do that. Let's start a 5am club. Let's have dogs in the office. And those are all really fantastic perks and, and environmental things. But if they're not supporting the process and the purpose of your organizational strategy, then it's just a nice thing to have. And actually culture is far more powerful than that, that it can help. It can blow with you, blow your organizational sales in the right direction. If you align the behaviors, the, the processes, the artifacts, the taboos, the rituals, all these sort of things with your organizational strategy. And that's really what I try to convert people to thinking, stay away from the shiny, shiny. Let's put some rigor and structure around and let's get that wind blowing with your sails. Do you find then is that, that there have been organizations that will do just the shiny, shiny so that they will say, we're going to get a slide and we're going to do an area, just a ball pool. And that, that should be in, that should be, that should be enough. There are, but organizations that are serious about employee engagement will always have a strategic plan behind it, a people plan behind it. It won't just be the shiny, shiny for the sake of the shiny, shiny. What, what you tend to find though, organizations that are kind of watched from a distance to see what they do. So Google put a slide in, for example, or how much do certain places pay or what's the perks around, you know, if you work on the railway, do you get discounted travel, that kind of thing. They tend to get more focus from people that don't work there going, look what they've got. And this sort of little green eyed monster pointing them out. Whereas when you work in the organization, culture is broadly invisible because it's just how things get done here. This is how we talk. This is how we dress. This is how we behave. So all those things that are perks and shiny, shiny for everyone else, they're not for the people within the culture. That's just how we get things done here. So to answer your question, yes, you do see that, but it tends to be people looking into other people's organizations rather than people within the organizations themselves. So you, you, you spent a long time in contact centers yeah. and then was there, was there a moment where you just thought I can do, I want to branch into doing this on my own. I want to make a real difference. What, what happened? And so there was, I mean, I'm quite lucky because I've worked for one telecommunications company for nearly 20 years. My, my contact center career is just over 25, 26 years. So a huge chunk of my adult life has been spent at, at one organization. But when I started there, there was two phones and three tariffs and, and that was it. And by the time I left, you've got self-driving cars and a dongle <laughs> you can hang on a cow's bum to tell the farmer when it's pregnant. So there's a huge change in, in the industry and in the sectors that they now operate in. So I'm, I'm quite fortunate that it feels like I've worked for maybe 20 different companies, even though I spent mm. two decades in, in mm. one place, but certainly the trying to change organizations from the inside and change the way that, that we perceive good. I've done that for a very long time, I've done that for probably 16, 17 years at that time. When I left that particular contact center, I took some time out to self-reflect because I felt I had this kind of moment of, I feel like I'm good at what I do, but I've only done it in one organization, albeit that organization changed a lot. So am I actually any good? So what I'll do is I'll, I'll go to university and the student cohort that I'm in includes people that are, are very senior leaders from around, around the world, in fact, so I can learn from the students and I can learn the academic ways of, of the world as well. And that kind of gives me some more tools and more experiences and some validation that I do actually know what I'm doing. However, the trade-off was that I had less time. See, I'm doing university and I was job seeking at the time. And as a result, I, I couldn't dedicate the time to prepare for interviews, et cetera, properly. There was a lot of interviews and a lot, a lot of job applications that were just kind of you taking a step down from the seniority that you were working at before and you might be a flight risk. And I was coaching some, some local business leaders who said, why, why don't you just do it for yourself? Why don't you bet on yourself? And I, I let it marinate for a few months. And then you're absolutely right. You should always bet on yourself just as, just as you've done. And the it's, it's equal amounts. I don't know if you found this the same, Martin, but it kind of equal amounts of Yay, fantastic. I'm my own boss and I can, I can pick and choose the clients that I want and work when I want and walk the dog when I want and all that sort of stuff. And 
Jesus, what the hell have I done giving up that kind of <laughs> safety of a, of the structure and, and the rigor of being in full-time employment? I don't regret it at all. It's been absolutely fantastic being able to be far more ethical in the choice of who I work with, far more, it, it's allowed me to learn a whole range of skills. You know, as a, as a business owner, you're everything from the cleaner to the CEO. You know, I never thought I'd be excited about bookkeeping, but you know, that, that's one of, <laughs> one of the strings to my bow. So yeah, it's, it's been a roller coaster, but I wouldn't have changed it at all. Well, no, I'm a, I'm a baby in comparison. So, but everything you were saying, yeah, absolutely. So far anyway, rings true. And that it's really interesting that the, the flavor you have of that doubt around I've, I've been in one place for all this time. What do I know? It's interesting how we all have the, we all have a question. I think that we can beat ourselves up with for some people in our industry. It is, I was never on the phone. So what do I know? You know, there's so everyone has a different, a different flavor that whatever the means to do it is at some point you have to address that at some point you have to accept it and move on or reason with yourself and, and go past that, you know, whatever it is that, that is that, do I know what I'm talking about? Will anyone yeah. actually, will anyone it, actually listen? It, it is a form of almost imposter syndrome that not, not feeling that you're good at something. And one, one of the old managerial kind of viewpoints and methodologies around it is you need to work on your development areas. You need to work on those questions that, that are giving you doubts. And I'm not from that school at all. Mm. Superman doesn't tell people he's allergic to kryptonite. You know? <laughs> yeah. you know, Alex Ferguson wasn't whacking in 30 goals a season. You, mm. you find what you're good at and make yourself great at it. Lean into your strengths and find, find opportunities where you can be more you. And for those places that are potentially perceived as a deficit, so I'm, I'm not very good with structure and to-do lists and organization. My partner absolutely is. On the flip side of things that she's not quite as strong as, as I am, we make a perfect partnership because we create the environment, we create the culture where we can both play to our strengths. We don't, we don't both need to be strikers and goalkeepers. You be the striker, I'll be the goalkeeper and find, find organizations, find networks, find colleagues, find partners that allow you to be you. I love that. Now, culture, I know from you coming on the LinkedIn live, I just wait for the, I wait for the comments because I find them so <laughs> insightful and I, I genuinely learn a lot and I'm not, I'm not joking, but culture, culture probably hasn't been as prevalent in terms of a phrase and people saying it, it makes a big difference where I choose to work or whether I stay in a company with it being so prevalent and so broad that that's got to help you. But does it mean that you have to kind of, when you first work with companies, help unpick what the understanding is and what it actually means? Again, a good, good question because culture is a, a kind of amorphous, ambiguous, abstract idea. And actually, before I even work with a client in, in attracting a client, you have to kind of find your way of explaining how you're going to add value to their business. And part of that is explaining the impact of, of culture. And you're right in that discussions around culture can feel a bit almost faddy. It's, it's, it's a key buzz phrase in kind of the HR world and the interpretation of those things tend to be. How do we create a great place for employees to work? How do we make it fun and lively and exciting, which are all noble, noble goals, but actually culture is, is far, far more powerful than that. And to give you a, a contemporary example, if you look at what's going on with the railways at the moment, I, if I just pick on Avanti West coast at the moment, I'm not, I'm not here to talk politics or anything about it, but Avanti West coast took over from Virgin trains about four or five years ago. The tenure on the railway is very long. So actually they have the same employees in the same buildings and trains working to the same conditions and, and rules because they were two peed over being paid the same amount, they were very comparable perks, 
So why is the customer experience between those two organizations? So as a customer traveling with Virgin Trains or a customer traveling with Avanti, why is it so different when all of the things are exactly the same within the organizations? The difference is culture and culture is driven, hopefully strategically from your overall vision. Virgin's vision was, or, or their, their mission was, we're the holiday before your holiday. We know nobody gets on a train for fun. They're, they, they're going some, they're going to a business meeting, they're going to the airport, they're going to see friends. So we're going to be the holiday before your holiday. We're going to make it as seamless a journey as possible. And the values that fall out of that are things like the customer owns the information. So they're very open with their, what they tell you on the, on the trains through the tannoys when trains are late and they apologize and so on. There's no kind of excuse making, et cetera. So the way they behave, the way they react to situations, the way they determine what good looks like, the way we get things done around here is driven from their vision and purpose through their missions, through their behaviors. Avanti's mission and, and purpose is very different. They're much more focused around stakeholder return, maximizing share value, which again is a noble target, but because it's a different mission and purpose, you get a very different flavor of how people are expected to behave. And the upshot is it's, it's not whether it's a fun place to work or not, the impact to your bottom line, the impact to the customer experience and the impact of whether people will decide to drive somewhere rather than pay for your service. That's what culture does. That's fascinating. And it's such a, a great example. If you were having to explain to someone what culture is, but also the impact, because yeah. like you say, if all of the. The structure, the inputs, the people, what they're paid is exactly the same. Mm -hmm. Why is there such a difference in, in performance, in probably, I imagine other measurable KPIs like attrition and yep. a sickness and, and things like that. It's, it's such a good example. And then you, then you start to think, well, this can apply everywhere. This is why. Absolutely. Team performance can change when the team manager or team leader changes. It's exactly. the same people doing the same job, mm -hmm. but all of a sudden performance drops through the floor or skyrockets one of the two. It, exactly. And kind of micro level, you get it when you change, maybe a team leader and the frontline agents get a different feel from what it's like working here. The same can happen with an acquisition. So if your organization is, is, is merged or acquired by a, another one, you'll hear comments on the front line in your, in your team leads and your ops manager saying things like, oh, it's not like it, what it used to be. It doesn't feel mm. the same. Do you remember? And there's this kind of rose tinted glasses. It is like it used to be. Objectively mm. it is. It's still the same salaries, the same people doing the same jobs in the same buildings. But yeah, and that's that cultural win that we're talking about. And in any social group, culture happens by default. It just automatically happens. You, you can also design it and design is always better. And you'll mm -hmm. see this, you'll see this. So if you, if you work in an organization that is quite large and by large, I mean, over sort of 200 heads, you will see that keeping in mind that nobody comes to work, wanting to do a bad job, everybody will be, will align themselves into their own little social groups, usually around sort of 50 heads. And they will do what they think is the right thing to do because nobody comes to work doing the wrong, but wanting to, to do a bad job. So you get different interpretations of what the business is about and what sales think it's about, what customer care think it's about, what technology think it's about. And then you end up with this kind of tribal siloed behaviors between, you know, that create limiting beliefs. So customer care are looking at sales saying they're all ropey and they'll mm. sell anything to anyone. <laughs> they've got salespeople looking at customer service saying, you know, they, they've got no commercial acumen. They don't know how to run a business, give away too many gestures of goodwill. And ultimately it's down to the, the predominantly the leadership, no, not always the, or not in highly the leadership, but it's sort of down to the leadership to be clear and articulate on why are we here? What is our purpose? So that you can get alignment in those behaviors and the way we get things done around here. And that's usually what's missing from organizations. How much of that comes down to communication, not just top down, but in between all of the teams and communication that reminds people of their raison d'etre, if you like, our, our purpose here is this, mm -hmm. and we all have to buy into it and we all play slightly different parts. I can remember I was part of a company 
and we would take we were taken over and again now now that you've kind of prompted this it's made me think that led to a cultural change but actually practically nothing changed the company that bought us did nothing but for a long time in the absence of really clear communication we were like well they're going to do something something's going to change it's <laughs> has it changed already yeah it feels like it's changed already doesn't it but nothing had actually changed so there's there's those jungle drums kind of beating mm. the way around the so in a in a in a vacuum people will make up their own mind based on evidence that they that is either there or that they feel is there as well because we we start to look to things to reinforce what we already believe things like our, our confirmation bias goes looking for this communication is vital but it is also seen sometimes as a bit of a whipping boy. You know, our culture here is, is not where we want it to be because our communications are bad. Let's go and you know, get, get a new work platform. Let's go and get, let's go and get popular or Facebook. Again, the shiny, shiny, rather than starting with why is it important? What we do, what difference do we make in the world? How do we, how do we make our customers lives better, et cetera? That purpose is what needs translating through and you don't need Although communications is important, you don't, that only tells people what to do. If I put a spin on it another way, if cultures and cultures felt emotionally, just like love. So if we think about the communication strategy that you have in place with you and your partner, do you, do you have an email cascade that goes out every Monday at 10 o'clock? <laughs> no, yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a newsletter. <laughs> yeah. There, there might be a, there might be a card that comes around the 14th of February, but the you know that you love each other because of the constant, consistent, small things that let you know that you're on track. And that's a unique language between you and your partner. You know, nuzzling your nose in her ear isn't, it will mean something different in somebody else's relationship. And cultural identity is very similar. I'm not suggesting that contact centers should go and nuzzle noses in ears, but each to their own. <laughs> I, I know, I know. I'll, I'll park that story that's just jumped into my head. But the, the small, consistent, authentic things that go on throughout your business are far more powerful than what's your communication strategy, when's the email due out, et cetera. Things like how your managers talk to you, the language they physically use, what your coaching sessions are focused around. You know, I've, I've, I've been into clients that say they're all about the customer and then the word customer isn't used anywhere in their business. They're, you know, they're clients or so it's little things that hide in plain sight that really make the difference. It's that, it's that nuzzly nose. It's not the big bunch of flowers once a year. It's not one big con. It's not one big award. It's constant. And how, for the work that you do, if you had to look at a pie chart of similarities of the people that engage with you, mm -hmm. are you there as a red the dare sort of putting out fires or were you there help accelerate people that have kind of got it set up and there or is it I, I imagine it's all but if there's what leads to the the b signal going up into the sky yeah there's a there's a terrible cliche about business consultants that we we read the time off your watch and then get paid for it and <laughs> unfortunately it's somewhat true with, with what i do so mantra number three is culture leaves evidence. So if this is what we say we're about in the organization, if I say we're about customer, that's absolutely fine. If that's your strategy, we're going to be customer centric. That's absolutely fine. And let's go and have a look. If your talk, the talk is a walk, the walk in the, in your, in your organization, in your operations. And what we'll, what we'll find is things like 80% of the calendar time on the front line is spent around commercial target setting and governance. Well, that's, that's a mismatch with what you say you're about and what's actually happening. You don't use the word customer through your organization. Your R and D department is developing two products for customers. One is going to generate 10 million in revenue, but have no impact on the customer. The other is going to generate 1 million in revenue, but have a much better customer experience. You're going to go with the 10 million because it makes more revenue. Well, that's misaligned with what you say you're about. So a lot of the work that I do is, is pointing out some of these pieces of evidence that often hide in plain sight and almost all of the, all of my clients say, you know, you're right. And the value is what do we do about it? 
So it's not about pointing out, you know, because there's some things that are really, really good in organizations and you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But quite often it's things like, yeah, we, we didn't realize that all of our meetings are scheduled for exactly an hour. Why? That's, that's the diary that's dictating how you behave. You don't need it for that long. Let's challenge that behavior. So where, where is best to invest? And what I do is, first of all, I, I hold a mirror up to the organization. The second is I will help them understand the behaviors that are manifesting today and might be driving unintended consequences that are not in line with their organization. And how do you, how do you get, get those kind of sanded off? The third part is understanding our people from a tendencies and psychological preferences point of view. Because if we have a whole cohort of, for example, introverted people, and we decide that we're going to invest in our recognition strategies, then we know that the tactical delivery of things like public award ceremonies is not going to be right for that cohort. So understanding how kind of make people tick and what their preferences are can then inform the last stage, which is where do we invest to move these people from where we are today to tomorrow? Where are we going to get the most juice from the squeeze? And to answer the question, almost all of the, the clients have a bit of a, yeah, you're right, eureka moment. Um, what do we do about it? And the value I add is, well, here is where you're going to get the best return because you can invest in a thousand things. You can have slides and beanbags and all sorts of stuff, but actually you're going to get the most from leadership development of the particular leaders, comm strategy, recognition, ED&I processes, well-being, etc. Yeah, that's great. I went to a contact center once that had a, had a slide and once you kind of got off the, the PR tour, as it were, once you lost your kind of North Korean minders, and I was just sat next to someone and I went, oh, and he was actually sat quite near the slide. I went, how often do you use it? And he was like, what yeah oh never no yeah. one does can i just take a moment of your time to let you know about the team leader community that launches on the 1st of february if you have team leaders team managers or aspiring team leaders that you want to get involved in a community where they can learn share best practice share challenges get access to all of my content and experts coaching sessions and at their own podcasts, their own webinars, then please just get in touch. Email me at martin at get out of rap. Now back to the show. The challenge is that you're fighting against a human psychology with this. So there are different types of motivators. Your main two that, you, that your listeners will have heard of are extrinsic motivators, the things that are done to you and internal intrinsic motivators. Extrinsic are things like your salary, your pay, recognition, the slide in the office. And the challenge with extrinsic motivators is there is a process in your, in your brain called hedonic adaption. And what it does is it tries to get your, your brain's kind of happiness level back to a baseline. And the idea is that it, if you suffer trauma or uh, bereavement, you have a dip in your happiness, it works hard to get you back to a base level. If you have something really good happen to you, like you win the lottery, you have a huge spike in happiness and it gets back to a base level. And you will have experienced this. You will have bought a car, for example, and on the first day, second day, you've driven a hundred miles, showing it off to your friends and you're, you're dead happy about it. Three weeks later, it's just a thing. It's just a tool. You will have won a PlayStation from work, you know, and go, oh, wow, that's fantastic. It's on eBay within a week. So we have to be careful. Extensive motivators are very powerful to kind of get that movement around things like incentives or attracting people with things like pay but it's not what keeps people happy. It's not what keeps mm. people motivated. And that is things like purpose and aligning their passions, which are intrinsic motivators. So yeah, mm. the slide, I knew where that conversation was going straight away there. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't even know it was there. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think I, I, as an ops leader, I spent a lot of time devising games, incentives, and we'd, we'd utilize our team and get, we had some great people. One actually went on to work at the BBC as like set design. She was amazing. She used the wall space and we had great, you'd walk into like Narnia, but we had great board games all up on the wall and it took ages and we would make sure our, the rules were fair and every, you kept as many people motivated for as long as possible. And I'll never forget, we finished one and we handed out all the awards. I hadn't even gone and sat back down and three people asked me, what's next? What's next? What, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, what give me the drug. Give me the drug. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I don't know. When will you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and organizations spend a huge amount of time on, on what they perceive as engagements, which is coming up with the ideas and how can we do something that's novelty and something that's going to stand out, et cetera. There are genuine benefits of that. It's an extrinsic motivator. So you will see a spike in performance, a spike in happiness. You'll have a kind of halo slash Hawthorne effect that happens. An organization should still do that. However, there is a check and balance just to say, why are we doing this? You know, what ultimately are we trying to achieve with our people? Do we, do we, there's a mismatch in the way that organizations often work today in that we know that there is no such thing as a job for life anymore. We know that 50% of people between 18 and 23 will have had three jobs in the last 12 months, yet the, we don't prepare people to leave our organizations. So if, we, if we're trying to make them as, as productive and feel as, as much belonging as possible whilst they're here, that will help inform whether we should have a slide, whether we should do a newsletter, whether we should change the pay structure whether we should, you know, have a, have an event and, you know, have, have whatever it might be, dancing monkeys and circus stuff. It, it kind of becomes your North star as to what are we trying to achieve? I remember getting challenged actually around, do you think you could spend less time devising your next <laughs> version of mousetrap and a little bit more time on just making people's, making them better at their job, really going at a deeper level as to understanding why they did the job what good progress looked for them, what their career looked like, rather than going, welcome to Willy Wonka's job actually <laughs> version, you know, so, and it, and, and it, de it definitely had a, it definitely had an impact because like you say, it was pretty soon, it didn't matter how nice and interesting we made the contact center, some people were deeply unhappy mm -hmm. because they weren't getting the right training because we hadn't yeah. tapped into what they foresaw their career looking like and how we could help them. Mm -hmm. And you, you made a really interesting point there, helping people leave. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned that to me before, and I absolutely love that. Can you just expand on that a bit? Yeah. So my, my view, my view of, of leavers today is that there's a lot that we can learn from the way that organizations that are set up for leavers work. So for example, university, they know that there is a finite time that their resource will, will be in university. So they have processes set up to say, thank you for coming to us in the graduation. They have processes after the person has left that allow them to keep in touch and they celebrate their successes almost as a, they were with us for three years or four years or however long their academic studies were, look where they are now, look what they learned with us. Organizations in the, in the commercial space though, in the, they seem to see it as a, almost a, a bad breakup. So they, you have somebody that's worked for you has helped, helped in the success of your organization who says they want to leave for whatever reason, says that they want to leave. Exit interviews are conducted in less than 15% of cases across the, across the UK. So we're not really interested as an organization in why they're leaving. Those that are there, there's a lot of studies around the exit interviews being full of bias in terms of we're trying to qualify questions that we want the answers to in a certain way. And once you're gone, you, you're dead to us. You know, you might even find yourself on a blacklist of do not reemploy. So I, I would love if it would be a, my kind of Valhalla, if organizations recognize that you put an awful lot of investment, hopefully into these people, they have grown, which means they are going to leave if there's not opportunities elsewhere in the business, but there shouldn't be any kind of penalty or perceived penalty around that because actually it can still be a really good relationship. You never know who's going to come back through the door in five years, 10 years time. And it's a great part of your own employer brand to say, look, we, we care about our people, even if they're not our people anymore, look what they achieved with us. I'd love that. Wouldn't, wouldn't you love that? Wouldn't everybody love that? Yeah, I love it. And I, I've said this before a few times, actually, I, there's, there's certain freedom that comes from being a leader that if you can say to people, I'll, I'll help you leave, mm -hmm. I will help you with your career, recognizing that I think it was a bit easier at first because I was in 
outbound sales and that came with an understanding that not it was a minority that did it for a long period i very much focused on we're going to make it the best time possible for you here and we're going to teach you skills that will service serve you well in in later life and that's from my point from the manager's point of view but also i would hope the team member's point of view is quite liberating it removes a lot of the perceived emotion from that relationship because you're like look we're all about progression we're all about kind of growth mindset and like you said earlier you win or you learn right which is in sales if you if you take everything badly you're not going to be men you're not going to be sane at the end of your first shift <laughs> let alone <laughs> because it's it's all it's all rejection but it's how you kind of what do you do with it that's yeah. that's important yeah absolutely and supposedly the the purpose of leaders is to create more leaders so we can't all be leaders in the same organization so we we're creating attrition but not all attrition is bad and to take it one step further, the amount of things that I've learned from people that have been, that I've been lucky enough to be kind of custodian of, that I've learned from, um, is fabulous. And I lose all of that if it's seen as a kind of father-child or a subordinate-superior relationship and you're seen as a resource. That, that we, nobody wins from that. You leave a sour taste in the mouth of the person that's leaving. That affects your ability to attract talent in the future, you don't learn anything as the, as the manager or leader, there's no winners. It's mm. yeah. It, it seems crazy to me. You've mentioned mantras and I think I've, I've counted three. What do you have other mantras? I, I have a few and they they all serve the same purpose, which is to keep me on track. So for example, my, my number two is nobody comes to work wanting to do a bad job. So. When, when I was at this telecommunications company, the sales team there, there was a reputation outside of the sales team because of the MI reporting that showed there were certain sales that were not compliant, but it's because the salespeople are all dodgy. So they're all, they're all selling anything because they're only, they're only motivated by commission, apparently, which is a fallacy, but don't get, don't get me started on that. But this limiting belief was driven by, we must employ some bright cowboys. If you go in with the mindset of nobody comes to work wanting to do a bad job, then when bad jobs happen, it takes the accusation and the blame away from the individual to what's driving that behavior. And actually mm-hmm. the, the, I, I created a role that was originally, it was, it was advertised as kind of policeman's role. So we've got some reports that say our people aren't adhering to certain performances. We need someone to go in, analyze things and, and slap some wrists. By going in with a, nobody comes to work wanting to do a bad job. You're able to have a look through the data and go, right, the vast, vast majority of things that you think are reporting as, as, as nefarious actually are because of other things. So for example, with delivery charges, you had to charge a delivery every time you sent a, a handset out. However, 18 months earlier, there'd been a huge sales campaign to what we call farm the base. So you have a prime contact, you try to sell them additional lines for their partner or children, et cetera. And they all become eligible at the same time. So the salesperson, you've got three phones that are being delivered to you. I'm not charging three deliveries. So I will charge one delivery. I can afford it on my kind of profit targets, et cetera. However, that shows that you're only 33% compliant. So somebody needs their wrist slap. So what I did by going in with this, this mantra was able to say, look, 99% of the agreements that are going through are above board and it's a reporting issue. We can either invest in reporting and spend all our resource there, or we can trust our people are not trying to pull the wool over the eyes of the organization and explain to them that we're actually trying, we, we want to empower them. We want them to do more of this sort of stuff. And instead we'll put our emphasis on certain red lines that are absolute no-nos and those will have to be explained by the operation. And we, we generated an extra 10 million in revenue in the first year of that, of that going out. And that's all because wow. the mantra mm-hmm. says, just check your limiting beliefs, just check how you work. And that comes back to your kind of process background that mm-hmm. rather than just think, 
hang on a minute, we need a marshal to come into town and sort out all these cowboys. Yeah, yeah. Let's start looking at why is it that is it is something as simple as a confusing policy? Is it something as or no 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 they're all up to no good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and they're rarely another spoiler alert. Rarely all up to no good because everybody everybody comes to work wanting to be part of something and wanting to be purposeful in what they do. The challenge is that there's a lot of roles that don't offer that, that become survival roles. You know, I'm, I'm here to earn a crust to pay for my ridiculous electricity bill. And it's the role of leaders to create environments where people's personal values and their personal drivers and their personal purpose is as aligned to what you're trying to achieve as possible. And that might mean that people leave your organization because it's not a right fit. But if if my employer is trying to get me to work in a way that is different to my values, that's where toxicity is created. It's not that workplaces are intentionally trying to be toxic, it's that you're trying to get me to behave in a way that I don't agree with. So being open, transparent, and aligning values where possible to a common purpose is one of the ways that strong, sustainable cultures are built. How would people listening to this take a litmus test of their culture? I mean, I I would assume that everyone kind of be able to say our culture is, and then put it on some kind of scale of it's good. It's okay. But what if, what would you suggest to people a a more revealing, revealing measures as it were? Yeah. Yeah. Again, a, a really interesting question because if you pardon the metaphor, a fish doesn't know it lives in water. You know, (laughs) culture is the way we get things done around here. So even in cultures that are horrendous to look at from the outside. So, you know, Tesla is the Twitter story is going through at the moment with, with Elon Musk, the, to the outsiders stood on the shore that can see into the water. It's obvious to us that, you know, we wouldn't want to work. Although there will be other people on the shoreline going, yeah, actually, I don't mind my pound of flesh if he's going to reward. So. But for the fish in the water, they they can't always tell. So when it comes to analyzing your own culture, the fact that you're in it, and particularly if you're tenured and been there a while, makes it very difficult because the culture supports you. You know, you've you've lived through it and it's part of what you do. So actually one of the best ways of, of kind of getting a feel for what it's like and how we get things done here is new starters and leavers, particularly leavers that have started somewhere else because they're on the shore. They can see into your water. Your if you've got high fallout attrition in the first four to six weeks, you know that there's something misaligned between the dream that's been sold and the reality of working in the place. And sometimes it's very easy to kind of, oh, it's, it's the recruitment process or it's the onboarding process or, you know, IT didn't get them a laptop fast enough or whatever it is. But the reality is people don't leave because their laptop was a couple of days late. That's a good litmus test for whether what you say you're about and what it's actually about. Exit interviews are the same because they will have experience of what it's like to work where you are. And if they've started somewhere else, they'll also have a comparison. So they know what other, other cultures are like too. So they, the end of the employee journeys is the most powerful place. I love that. And I've heard of companies that will specifically ask new starts to kind of do like a quasi audit on them mm-hmm. when they when they start and we actually previous company had some people come in and they were so blunt it was uncomfortable it was uncomfortable mm-hmm. and and actually easier for them to be ignored and go well we don't like the cut of their jib yeah look how they've conducted themselves because they've come in here and said we're rubbish yeah yeah. We, we Rather said, tell gloves. us, what? take the gloves off and tell yeah. us, hang on, hang on, stop hitting me. Yeah, it's, yeah. That, that is an indicator of your culture straight away. So if a, 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 a culture is purposeful. So I, I always use the, and the analogy, I, I, I used it recently of, you know, imagine you work in a place that's really enthusiastic and energetic and it's a, it's a buzz. And on a Friday, we all get dressed in our football kits and go to the pub at two o'clock and. We've got to grab a grand machine and based on our performance, we get time in there to grab vouchers. Isn't that an amazing place to work? Well, congratulations. You're the worst funeral director ever. So culture is not about fun. It's about what you're trying to achieve as an organizational strategy and how do you align the behaviors that way? 
And the, the best cultures are safe and they're not only purposeful, they are safe. So people can raise their hands and say, I don't agree with that, or actually this was my experience, or I need help. That psychological safety is incredibly powerful. And we have to be prepared as organizations and, and as leaders to take that uncomfortableness and look at it objectively because the world looks completely different based on your path through life. You know, we'll look completely different to a fish. Yeah, that's very true. Now, as we approach, you know, you see the tech layoffs at the moment are just mm. horrific, huge, huge numbers. The manner in which some of it's been done is abhorrent. <laughs> you, and you think about that and where, where we are as in the business world or society in general, the part that culture has to, to play going forward seems to me that it takes on even more importance. It, it does. And I'm, I'm choosing my words in, intentionally because culture can be used. It can also become a whipping boy when <laughs> you just like communication. So layoffs are sometimes unavoidable. My, my concern with the tech layoffs that are going off at the moment is that they've become the de facto norm. So we're, we're behind in some sort of arbitrary performance that we agreed, you know, we said to our shareholders, we deliver 5% we're at four and a half percent. How can we cut costs? People are our biggest costs. Off you go. And it feels, it feels inhumane. Mm. However, culture is before all of that culture is what made you think that how we get things done around here allows for that. So if you've, if, to use a different analogy, if you, if you're a, a family of five and you're just getting by, excuse me, on your, on your salaries, and then something happens externally, the market changes in the, in the metaphor. So for example, gas and electric prices go up, the cost of bread goes up. You would never think, well, tiny Tim, you're off, you know, we've got one less mouth to feed that'll save us some, some funds. Because that's not how we get things done around here. You would look at every other, you would exhaust every other option before you get to that point. And I feel that in some of the tech layoffs and, and, and the other layoffs that are going on, that hasn't happened. It's almost become, I know some organizations factor it into their budgetary processes. You know, we have a headcount target to hit and that how can we slim that headcount? Let's have a look at that every April or every November or whatever it is. And that, and that given my purpose is all around creating spaces where people belong, where they can contribute safely and purposefully without fear of ridicule or reprimand, that really doesn't sit well with me at all. Just another question that always seems to float around when it comes to talking about culture and talk, and I want to ask you as an expert. I'm not, I'm not sure I count as an expert, but I will, yes, I'll throw my, throw my tuppence in. If you hear companies refer to themselves as a family, is that a red flag for you? It can be. It can be. So for a few reasons, every family has dysfunction, every family. So if the phrase is used to mask that there are, you know, we expect you to do things that you might be uncomfortable for. We want you to go to that weird uncle's birthday party and keep your mouth shut or whatever the, the equivalent metaphor is in the organization, then yes, it can be a, it can be a red flag, but there are, there are, there are lots of red flags that the organizations can have, you know, things like. It, it's the mismatch between what you say you're about and what you do. So if you see a job advert for an organization that says we're, we're a, a energetic young workplace where, you know, that operates on open and open honesty and transparency, and then the job doesn't have the salary in it, in the advert, that's a disconnect between what you yeah. say you're about of what you're about. So, and people feel that even if you don't know where to look, even if you, 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 if you're not a cultural expert. You know, when something's not right, you know, it just doesn't feel right. And you'll start to see, I don't know if you've been in this situation, but you'll start to see organizational values become weaponized. So you'll, you'll see things like the telecommunications company had speed, simplicity, and trust. And then when things went wrong, or if it was difficult to get a password reset or mundane things, I thought we operated with speed where a communications company can't communicate with each other. So you, you start to see toxicity creep in and, wep and weaponize values, <laughs> but everybody comes to work wanting to do a good job. So something is driving that behavior and that is culture. Give me integrity. I want to beat him with the integrity. And, and again, I know this is a, this is a very Simon Sinek thing, but that, 
it, it's just a word. It's, it's mm. just a, it's just a, a noun. Values need to be verbs. They need to be something that you do. The hashtag of be kind means nothing unless you actually get off your backside and go and do something with that kindness. So integrity is the same. If you have to, a bit more integrity today. I'll you, try my best. You've got bigger problems in your business if you need to tell people to do the right thing. Yeah. It's how, bring those values to life, turn to verbs and set expectations. You know, it's culture is not just the worst tolerated behaviors, you know, things you let slide. It's also the best tolerated behaviors. So if people are doing things that you want them to do and you're not catching them doing it right, then that's just as bad as you'll just end up with a beige customer service. You end up with a beige workforce. It will just quiet quit. Mm. I, uh, so true. I can remember saying to, when I was managing team leaders, saying to them, the last thing, the last place I want this to be is a consequence free environment. Mm -hmm. And I said, what I mean by that is when people leave today, I want you to see them and to say, you've done a good job or don't worry, tomorrow will be better. Or there's nothing worse actually than being a, a good performer. And walking out, and not that you wanted fanfare and garlands of flowers thrown. It would have been nice, but it wasn't that. It was just that somebody had seen you. Somebody had said, you've, you've had a good day today. It's been cracking. Well done. You know, that kind of... You matter. Validation. Yeah. You matter. And then to bring it back to the weaponization, you, you see that as well. If you build awards, for example, of Dave has done X today. Well done. Let's all give him a pat on the back. If Sarah did the same thing the day before and it wasn't picked up, you start to, you start to get kind of sniping and, you know, that wasn't recognized with me. So it's important that we're humane and we're authentic, but we're not just doing it because the boss's boss says, I've got to say thank you to everybody on the way. We've got to say thank you because we want to say thank you because that's how we get things done around here. Danny, it's been a, an absolute pleasure. You definitely can. And where the mantle of, I was going to say queen bee of the culture world, but just top bee. Yeah. There are, I don't think there are any king bees. I'm not, I'm not sure that's how bees work. <laughs> Danny, thanks very much for coming on. It's been brilliant. Thank you very much. Pleasure again is all mine, Martin. And good luck with the, uh, with the self-employment. Thank you. I'll be uh, knocking on your door a lot for advice. Always welcome. Coffee's on. Isn't Danny great? Thank you for listening. Uh, if you haven't already, please do subscribe and take care of yourselves. Have a great week.